0: Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast, it's Toby Miller here, and I'm in the office of an old friend whom I've known on and off, must be almost 30 years, and he's screwing up his face, Ian Cook. Ian, how are you?
1: I'm fine, Toby, how are you?
0: I'm alright. Now, Gough Whitlam just died. Did he? Did you know this? No, I didn't know that. Yes, he died overnight. Oh. He was reforming Australian Prime Minister folks between 1972 and 1975, and so the... Bourgeois media are full of what to do about this and what it means. It's even on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. Mm-hmm. Ian is a political theorist, political thinker, political philosopher and Australian government specialist. Is that right,
1: Ian? <laughs> uh, I guess that's sort of what you might call me, yeah.
0: So I've really sprung this on you because you didn't know the old boy had turned his toes up, but what did Whitlam mean or does he signify in Australian politics It's 40 years almost since he left Mm. office.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Whitlam came in at the end of an extended period of Conservative government. So to some extent, I mean, historically he represents a moment where a lot of people thought change was going to happen. And so in terms of an optimistic sort of progressive generation, he represents a moment that we saw as, you know, toward a better, more progressive, more interesting Australia. Mm. The period was short-lived. He he was in office for basically three years. Managed to introduce some significant reforms, including Medicare, uh, the nationalised sort of health system or health support system. So and um, you know deregulated. So took fees away at universities. So introduced some really profoundly significant um, pieces of legislation that have continued to have effects. And so he's remembered in some ways for a legacy. Mm.
0: For a legacy. And when you think about Australian politics more generally, as both an analyst of it and as a theorist, where do you position it? You know, a largely white settler colony uh, in the Asia-Pacific, extremely wealthy, but a wealth broken on imperialism and resources, basically.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh I mean, yeah, I mean, Australia carries a sort of, uh, I suppose, a history of a particular role in terms of international economy and international, you know, culture, I suppose. And to that extent, there are many of us who are sort of implicated in a sort of broader um, globalisation, if not imperialism. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think that's all of us. I think in some ways there's a sort of division um, between an Australian who... Who, whilst they're not overly sort of critical, have at least a, a relatively positive view about themselves, about Australia's situation and position in the world, and to some extent the region. And others who, are, who in some ways wish we were in Europe, you know, and in some ways, you know, sort of still imagine Australia as a sort of European country. You know, we're decreasingly white, um, but we don't really recognise that, uh, or at least many of us don't. This is, I guess, the point I was trying to make. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I suppose, you know, given we're talking media and given that, you know, this is a sort of podcast and I've got all such opportunities, for me this fits into a more, you know, Australian politics fits into a larger pattern of, of a polarisation. I mean, mm-hmm. you're seeing it in the US. Because I, I, I do, you know, international commentary and I was looking at a particular moment when there was a, the question was whether Obama had said that an attack on an embassy was an act of terror or whether he hadn't said it. And on the Fox media, he hadn't said it and he was culpable because it was an act of terror and he was covering it over or not telling the truth. In PBS, the progressive media, he had said it was a terrorist attack. So what had happened, the media was starting to bifurcate the world. There were two realities functioning, Mm. you know, one fed by Fox News, the other fed by PBS and the sort of, you know, progressive, Mm -hmm. what we Mm -hmm. think of progressives. That's sort of happening in Australia too. There's a... a, Is it? Uh, yes, there's a discourse emerging that sort of speaks to itself. I mean, it manifests in some ways in the, the, um, the Murdoch media, and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in that. And then on the other side, there's a more progressive sort of reality being constructed through the ABC and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, thank which you. is a public
0: entity and has been going for 80 years and is akin to the CBC in Canada or the BBC in Britain.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's <clears> – <throat> so, so for me, i was seeing bifurcation. I've seeing mm. the splitting of Australian society into, to, into people living in, in different worlds. So I think that, you know, you're right in the sense that there are those living in that old cultural world of imperialism and, and capitalism, but I think there are other Australians who are trying to imagine a slightly different future. And
0: now, in the United States – This is often understood as cultural liberalism versus cultural conservatism, and the dividing lines are over sexuality and race as much as anything. How would you theorise the bifurcation
1: here? Well, certainly in terms of sexuality, um, it does does have that. Not so much in terms of race. I think in terms of a sort of an old cultural construct of Australia being a country of leisure, of Mm, comfort, of inclusion, a welcoming, open, mm-hmm. friendly country, warm, you know, in mm-hmm. not just the temperature sense. Um, and so, I, mean, I think that, that for me is the other side of it. Australians who would like to welcome refugees, who would like to incorporate them, who aren't afraid of Muslims. Yeah. You know, and I think, and who you know, who want to sort of say, well, yeah, they'll be difficult at, at times, but look, you know, we can get on with people because that's who we are. Right. So I see those Australians you know, as the other side.
0: And Is this a debate about national identity? Because that is a very Whitlam thing, isn't it? Whitlam, and I guess John Gorton before him, who was the Liberal Party Prime Minister, Liberal in Australia, meaning like Republican or Conservative in the United States and Britain, not immediately preceding him, but the most important one in the years just prior to him, also interested in putting questions of national identity on the agenda. Are they on the agenda in that sense? What is an Australian in the way that those... Na- those nationalists wanted, mm-hmm. both Gordon and Whitman.
1: I think it's, it's not it's not so central to an agenda in the se- sense we're not having a, a public conversation about it. What we're having a public conversations about curriculum. We're having public conversations mm-hmm. about, um, you know, whether we are an Asian country or a regional, you Where know, the verses are sort of more international, and Tony Abbott going to Indonesia. And Tony to...
0: Abbott is the current prime minister. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, going to Indonesia is sort of, you know, some representation of of, of that. But on the other hand, um, there is still a central part of the conservative agenda that's organised around a white Australia, a very European Australia, and and the discourse is always sort of underpinned by that, and they remind us, (coughs) not by way of saying we need to talk about our identities too much, but we need to talk about these other things around our identities.
0: Mm -hmm. And as you describe it, this is becoming a more conflict-based society, but how would you define that in relation, say, to Marxism, or in relation to the idea of labour and capital in conflict, you know the backdrop to this, folks, is the importance historically of the trade union movement in Australia, uh, and the fact that the Labor Party, which has ruled Australia for some considerable part of the last uh, thirty or forty years, was the incarnation of the labor movement and political wing thereof.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think this is very much bound up with the neoliberal you know, ideological dominance as extending through the world that. That there's in Australia there's always been a sort of what we might refer to as a rough and tumble sort of place. There's a, a mm-hmm. level of aggro or aggression, mm-hmm. as you know, um, mm-hmm. that, that's part of being who we are. Uh, so that there's so and a sense there, there is a sense to which we we've been difficult, troubling, and that played itself out through the union movement as a as a sense of some sort of collective project. That one's one's anger, one's aggression, one's friction, mm. wasn't was a sort of a shared, a collective one that, that sort of played itself out through social structures, through institutions. I mean, religion was big for us for a long time in terms of Catholics and Protestants. And Massive
0: sectarian divide, wasn't it? And now it doesn't seem to apply
1: at all. Absolutely not. Tony Abbott, our Prime Minister, is a Catholic and shouldn't be the leader of the Liberal Party, which used to be a, Lib- a, Pres- a Protestant party. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we've, we've lost, you know, those sorts of things. so just, you know, it's, for me, the, what I'm experiencing, I suppose, is probably the best way I can describe it, is a level of goodwill toward other people that that is being lost. And so when our... Disease, our discomfort, our aggression manifests itself. It doesn't do so in a way of saying there's something wrong with our society. There's something wrong with what's happening to all of us. It, it becomes individualised through a neoliberal sort of construct that makes Australians less willing to say I share this with others. And that class discourse, I mean, which is, which was fundamental to the union movement. And and the Australian union, union movement was a you know, really powerful movement that involved research intellectuals. It wasn't just a sort of, you know, getting a better, you know, better wages and conditions. It was about, a, it was an intellectual project as much mm. as it was an economic industrial project. The unions lost that, you know, through the 80s, I suppose. Um, so that sort of ideological, intellectual dimension of what unions were doing was diminishing. So that as Australians were, so I mean, I guess that's part of the neoliberal project. You know, that we're all losing that vocabulary, we're all losing that sort of mentality. And so when we manifest our discomfort, we don't look for any sort of change.
0: So is this a question of civic culture? Do we need to use that kind of terminology to explain it?
1: I think that... I don't, I see it as a, I see it as a deeper at a deeper level about a level of decency or care, or uh, you know that I think we don't I don't want to get too far into this because if I move to the civic then I need to introduce sort of formal political processes and I don't think this needs formal politics okay. I don't think it needs parties and I don't think it needs that sort of stuff because I don't think they're they've changed in Australia. They're not what they used to be anyway. But those aren't the places where we're having conversations that might sort of induce um, some, some return to well, or, or a, a renewal of, of a commitment to sort of collective justice, collective social justice. And I don't know that I want to talk about that in terms of a civic, a civic practice because I think it's more human than that, and I think we can generate it at a more human level, because for the most part, I think Australian political institutions are like most of them in the world, fairly useless when it comes to representing goodwill.
0: Well, in the United States, the place where the working class has redress is, of course, not Congress, it's the courts. And it's the courts that engage in redistribution on some kind of equitable level, and that engage and address questions of injustice. Uh... I had always thought within Australia politics provided some of that, but I'm very out of touch. It sounds as though I'm more out of touch than I realise.
1: Well, I mean, I think that I mean, one of the markers of that for me was, was a period in the Labor Party, which has always been the Union Party, the Progressive Party, the Social mm-hmm. Justice Party, mm-hmm. where they stopped using the phrase social justice. Mm-hmm. They just stopped. And they did so self-consciously. I mean, Mark Latham, who was a leader of the Labor Party at one stage and, you know, was in a, an election, you know, might have been Prime Minister, was pretty much sort of arguing in terms of that sort of neo, those neoliberal constructs of sort of self-resourcing and, and this is about aspirational voters. Yes. And,
0: and, in fact, help me out with this, because I've been asked to write something for some magazine about Whitlam dying and I'm already working on it. I worked on it on the bus this morning. My sense is that in the 80s, the Labour Party, you know, reaped what it had served, which is that it was becoming a middle class but progressive party under Whitlam and defenestrating to a certain extent from the Labour movement. But then the Labour movement itself was taken over by people with economics degrees and not economics degrees that were really Keynesian, were more neoclassical. And the Labour Party in the 80s managed actually to engage in structural adjustment reforms so that would have been very difficult for reactionaries to have done because the Labour movement thought that it could continue with a horizontal union model mixed with a vertical union model. Mm-hmm. God knows well how they thought this would work. Mm-hmm. And that workers would invest in human capital and would remain competitive with a certain amount of state help. That's my kind of account of what it did. Mm. And so neoliberalism actually infested the Labour movement rather than the Labour movement being in opposition to it. What would your line be in response to that?
1: Oh, I think, that's a, I think that pretty much captures sort of what happened. That, um, As I was saying, I mean, for, for its, a long period, certainly when I knew the Labour Party through the 70s uh, and into the 80s, um, you know that that commitment to principle, to, to ideas, to conversations around ideas, was was palpable. But in part because of you know the pragmatism of, of you know winning elections and having to run a discourse of being a good economic manager,s mm-hmm. and you know as part of it. The, as you say, I mean, there was a big, there was a, a con um, through what the Accords, what we call the Accords, where trade unions were led to believe that they were part of corporatist arrangements mm-hmm. that gave them significant power in determining, you know, social outcomes. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that really those corporatist arrangements are just about locking the union movement into accepting mm-hmm. less work, reduced wages, more vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and so the, so they were sort of in some ways conned, but they were already, as you were saying, they were already changing themselves so there was less concern on their part yeah. that they were participating in that and a, more, and, and a greater willingness just to do so. And, and when they went that way, I mean, that meant that unions are no longer pushing collective fronts for all workers. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, lo- and we went to enterprise bargaining and enterprise bargaining yes, which this, meant...
0: this is the decline of horizontal unionism really
1: too cool, isn't it? This is when it's cactus. Exactly. It meant that strong unions couldn't look after workers in you know, weaker unions, yeah. and so you just lost any collective union mentalities and a capacity to cooperate and work together. And, and, and unions went for this because it's part of the power games they were playing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so we end up in a situation got where nobody's talking about social justice for a decade. Well,
0: Ian, we're here at Murdoch University. Murdoch University has perhaps its first ever graduate who's a senator, and he's a Green. In Britain and in the United States, his recent campaign video was a viral hit, as the saying goes. Tell us a bit about him and where the Greens stand in this rather desperate landscape that you and I are describing.
1: Well, I mean, Scott Ludlam, um, who's the person... No to
0: relation to, to Robert.
1: <laughs> to whom you were referring, has... I mean, he's interesting, in, I guess, in different ways because of his embrace of social media and his understanding of virality mm-hmm. and, and his use of it, um, that, that he was a politician who, who quite obviously set something up that he knew would, would impact in so, with, or work with social media in the way that it did. Mm-hmm which is a new generation of politicians. You know, for me in Australia, Australian politicians have been pretty ordinary in terms of their capacity to understand the new technologies and use them. So he's doing that, and that's a reflection of his his connectedness to a younger generation. (sighs) Which is fine at that level, and you can hear me sighing because <laughs> you know at the at a larger level the the Greens are in a very difficult position because economically you know we, everyone been through the global financial crisis. Australia did quite well through it because we had resources and we could sell a lot of coal and and iron ore and and stuff to just make money and that helped us to get through that. Uh, but that's not so true anymore. Um, so. Uh, <clears throat> So, so the realities that we're addressing are ones that make protection of the environment and even quality of life issues very hard to keep on the agenda. And the Greens are struggling. I mean, they lost a very, uh, I guess, uh, effective leader in Bob Brown about... a almost two years ago now, the leader who took over from him, Christine Milne, is not as effective as a, as a front person for that party. She's not as able to work with uh, the media, the language more generally, to be an effective communicator, I think. So that um, while Scott Lotham is building profile and I think will be ultimately a leader of the Greens, At this point in time, politically, they're in a very bad way. Are they? And and are going to struggle for quite some time. There's it's it's that combination of people being economic people being afraid and our politicians building cultures of fear. I mean, this is cultures of fear. I think would be familiar to pretty much all of your listeners. Mm -hmm. Australia, we have our own cultures of fear being created, fear of outsiders. You know being one of them with the asylum seekers um, and so this you know is feeding back into um, uh you know I look after myself, whatever the consequences are for others you know, is their problem um, and that is that 's not a mentality that works for greens you know? and so that's this is one of the problems they 're facing and And until the economy turns around, it's going to be hard for them to recapture much of that ground.
0: Mm -hmm. Ian, we're about halfway through. I wonder if we could turn this away from my asking you to update me (laughs) to telling us a bit about your publications, your research, because this is something that people can reach out and learn from, in many cases, wherever they are. And... As I indicated at the beginning, a lot of your work has been theoretical, even though you apply it in many instances, so Mm -hmm. could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, I mean, I'm I'm a fairly variegated publisher, I think you'd have to say, to the extent. I mean, my latest work has been, you know, using Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari's theorizations uh, and applying them to education policy, to intellectual practice more generally in part because it seems there's a resurgence of interest in marxism and so all that time I spent reading freud and marx and marcuse and all you know people are interested in some of that stuff again mm-hmm. and and I was always interested in that stuff and it was just politically there wasn't a lot of you know uh, a lot of other interest in it and and that that's important because that's allowed me to return to the sort of fundamental practices of what I understand intellectuals to be involved in, which mm. is some process of change. Mm. And, you know, the, the beauty of Deleuze and Guattari is they're actually willing to say whatever type they were, they were Marxists. And Guattari is quite active in trying to, you know, induce groups and, and mobilise. And, you know, I just think it's great to sort of have people who are both theoretically sophisticated, I mean very theoretically sophisticated, but also asking questions around political practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's that's fantastic because some of my earlier work was writing textbooks for, uh, you know, to try to get young people to think about Australian politics in a different way, to get them to perhaps, you know, not necessarily engage, but, but you know, rather than present it as the dull, boring, uh, alienating sort of thing that most textbooks tend to present politics as because they're fairly descriptive and, you know, I I wanted to try and make it engaging and trying to make it... Mm. Because, you know, it comes back to that that larger project. I mean, if what are we doing? If all we're writing... If all we're doing is writing for other intellectuals and showing how clever we are to to them, I'm sort of not so interested. I mean, I've done some of that, but it's more a case of, you know, how can I write things that other people might use to change what they want to do in their lives or how they're thinking about things. I wrote a book on Australian political, Australian liberal thinkers, you know, trying to make an argument that Australians could read other Australians having reasonably interesting ideas about politics. And we didn't actually read Plato and Aristotle and Mill and Marx that, you know, yeah, no, those are great figures. And of course, I would read them. But why? Why do we have to walk around thinking nobody in Australia had ever produced anything interesting along those sort of lines?
0: Who are some of the interesting liberal thinkers whom you engaged?
1: Sir so, uh, so Walter Murdoch, the person about whom my university is named, was one of them. Fascinating thinker. He mm. you know, wrote for the newspaper, mm. and you know, so he was and did it in in a way to try to educate people and change how they did and thought about their politics. And, and in some ways, I guess that was I found that. I don't know whether that inspired me or it reminded me, you know, and that was a long time ago that I wrote that book. Um, there's a woman called Sarah Dowse who was, and you know, she doesn't like the fact that I called her a liberal because she seems to see herself as more of a socialist, but she was involved in the in Australian democracy the Australian women getting involved in the bureaucracy to introduce, you know, equal rights legislation, equal opportunity legislation, and you know, and that was a really crucial part. I mean, that was a really important part of Australian feminism for me.
0: In the mid-'80s?
1: In the mid-'80s was, yeah, when it had its... You know, that's when it was at its peak, I, I suppose. And, you know, and the backlash <laughs> came yeah. in after, after that. But there were people trying to, you know, a, a, what I would call a sort of social modern liberal liberalism. There were people doing the old-style liberalism. Um, but, you know, Nugget yeah. Coombs, he was a, a, an economist in Australia who ran Keynesian economics. Philosophy, and who argued in some ways for redistribution, but in an economic sort of sense, you know, obviously with some cultural interest, but, but, you know, so, so yeah, Coombs. I mean, John Houston, who was leader of the Liberal Party later on, who was in some ways the, who introduced or who was central to the neoliberal shift in, the, in Australian mm-hmm. liberalism. Robert Menzies, who was very much a sort of, you know, a dominant figure in the political Liberal Party, Mm -hmm. um, who was, you know, very supportive of trade unions Mm -hmm. and believed that workers deserved a a voice. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, he's current... The current members of the Liberal Party of Australia keep talking about Menzies as if he was some sort of intellectual forebear. But I can tell you what the guy wrote. And it's nothing like what these people are talking Mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. And... You know, and I sort of think, well... I mean, yeah, the book disappears, a lot of, you know, everything, most of what I do does, but the point of it was to sort of say, hey, here's some materials that people can use, not just intellectuals but others. I tried to write it for a relatively broad audience mm-hmm. because, you know, that sort of... I wanted them to sort of think a bit differently. So, you know, so those are the sorts of, those are the sorts of things that mm-hmm. I write. Um, and it just so happens lately... Um, I've been you know, working with a guy who's doing work on a on a health uh, coaching program mm-hmm. um, because I see that as a, an opportunity to try to introduce ideas that people might be able to use to change what they're doing in their lives. And so it's not an, it's not a university thing, but it just maps back onto that larger desire on my part to try to sort of make scholarship sort of useful and interesting to people who aren't scholars. And as part
0: of that, I know you do a lot of media work. Could you talk to us about
1: that? I, 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 yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time, in like a lot of academics, so I just would not do media work whenever I was asked because I didn't have a specific knowledge in exactly what they wanted to talk about right at that moment. Uh, and then, then someone asked me to go on a, a, a talkback radio, a conservative talkback radio program, and... And I, it, and it just forced into my face the fact that I wasn't. I was refusing to talk to people by by not going into the media. I was, you know, saying I don't want to talk to people outside universities and. And that was troubling. People in
0: universities are so fucking interesting,
1: aren't they? Yes, we're terribly interesting. (laughs) We just yes, I love hanging around people at universities. I have some of my no, some of my worst friends. Yes, they are many friends, but not always interesting. But it was also a case of turning my back that I realised I'd been working with my back toward most of the people in my society for a very long time. And, and I'd not thought about that very carefully. And I thought to myself, well, I needed to work out how to talk to people. Mm-hmm. I'd done, I'd actually done journalism as, as a student. So I knew a little bit about how the media operated. So I wasn't going as a complete novice. But, but I got that invitation and thought, okay, i have got to turn around. i have got to try and get how to speak to people. And ever since then, uh, I, I've actually, I got drawn into commentary on international politics uh, which I do on a weekly basis, and I simply try and interpret things for people, you know, to try and get them to understand background to what's going on, and, you know, otherwise try and explain things in as as, as close to sort of normal language as I can get, you know, because, I mean, I can use Discord. I mean, I do Deleuze and Guattari. I can write, you know, I think reasonably sophisticated theory. Okay, but what would be the point of that if it didn't have something that it attached to, it, well, who would get value out of that? And, yes, some academics will, but academics don't learn anything from other academics, you know, very often. You know, for the most part, we repeat the same stuff we've always argued for most of our lives. Um, so, you know, so I got to a point of thinking, what was it? why am I doing that? And then you know, I realised there was a whole audience out there I'd been ignoring for a lot of time and... It bears cost. I have to be an expert. I find that difficult. I mean, you know, we've read our Foucault. We know what expertise is all about and we know what the presentation of self as an expert is and I have to struggle with that. I have to struggle with using a language that isn't particularly sophisticated and precise and I'm an academic and intellectual. I'm used to precise language and I complain about me. In the sense, if I complain about people who use words like the government in this really loose and sloppy way in my lectures, and then I go on the media and I use these phrases in that loose and sloppy way. Why? Well, because when you're doing that, to, to communicate through those technologies, you can't be an academic. You know, you, you've got you've to you've manifest a different persona, and you've got to be somebody else. And... So I'm, I'm, you know, thinking about the language and I really struggle with, I, you know, the ABC is, a, is where I do most of my work because it's the more intellectual part and I'm more comfortable in that language. When I move down to the, and I, see, that's it arrogance, down, I just said, elitism. When I move down to these other sort of, you know, talk about radio, you know, forgive, you know, once again, I've done elitism, I didn't mean to, um, I... Yeah, I change my vocabulary, and I find it quite difficult to do that. I have to be lighter and jokier, and and that's whilst that's a it's something I'm used to in other contexts. When I'm talking about politics, it's very hard for me mm-hmm. to to do it in that little sort of lighter level, um, because you know, I mean it's I have to think about who I'm talking to and and one of the disciplines of going on to the media is that i can't talk i can't talk like an academic you know and and so but i don't want to not, but that does but i still have to communicate ideas and i still have to try and get people to understand things
0: you're there because you're an
1: academic i'm there because i'm an academic but 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 i'm
0: if you were ian cook from the general store you'd not be given that place
1: I know, I know that. And then I have to ask myself, am I truly the expert that ought to be given that place? And the answer is no, to an extent that I don't know anything that much more than most other people do. I mean, yeah, I, I get it that I've got that sort of training. and But, you know, when, you know, we're, we worry about expertise, don't we? we? We see, you know, the construction of a person with knowledge, the power that this, you know, manifests and... You know, we understand what it is to say that, and and I know I've got to use power. Yeah, I mean, I you know, and I know I you know, I say to this people <laughs> all the time in my lectures. You know, people in politics have to accept the fact that we use power, and and we talk about power, and power isn't a bad thing. And you know, other people can worry about power and be objecting to it and wish it didn't exist, but in politics we accept it, we use it, we have to understand it. Um but I don't necessarily want it. And when I'm forgiven it, I'm quite reluctant (laughs) with it. So I have that, you know, incredible ambivalence um, about what I do every week. Um, And this
0: weekly slot, it's on what station?
1: It's it's on a regional, uh, ABC regional station. Sometimes it comes through Perth, so sometimes it's all of WA, Mm -hmm. but it's, yeah, everywhere outside of Perth.
0: So all of Western Australia, which is twice the size of Texas... And has what, two million people in total living in
1: it? Something like that, yeah. yeah. So and that's really and what's been really not neat about that is that I've had to think about talking to people in a region.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm
1: a city person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always been a city person. You know, I take me out and put me into trees and I sort of <laughs> wonder, you know, what so where's I'm gonna the do. concrete? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, where's the
0: concrete and where is the man with the leather mask wielding some kind of really, really dangerous and incendiary device waiting to come and get me. Here that is, yeah. Evil, rural, non idle
1: Yes, that's right. Completely comfortable. <laughs> Very comfortable <laughs> with the in, your natural environment. Yes. So, and yeah, and, but from them, I, I understand. Because in part, I used to do Western Australian politics as well on a Monday. I'd do Western Australian politics on a Monday, and international politics on a Wednesday. So I'd talk, a, and I'd go through the media you know, I'd go through looking at stories that people in regional Australia, Western Australia might be interested in. And, really? so and that made me think about people living outside a city and the sorts of needs you have and the lack of services and and the reality that you exist in. And, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, and then I realised yet another people who, you know, you know, yeah, of course you'd think about, but you'd never really thought of yourself talking to. And it was when I had to think of myself talking to them that I really thought about them in a, you know, deep sense. Mm -hmm. And so I have understanding that I would not otherwise have got from doing this. And so, you know, for me it's been this incredible opportunity to develop these skills that mean that I feel like I can get in front of something and explain Mm -hmm. an idea that might be relatively complicated but I can explain it in such a way that people will sort of find it reasonably interesting and sort of entertaining Mm -hmm. a little bit because it's, you know, I mean it's about... It's product. I'm part of the production of product. I'm in a media, you know, business, and I know it's. I know this is public media, but we still got to think product. And I, and I've known journalists and, and lived with journalists and lived with radio people long enough to know how committed they are to their product, and how, you know, and how, and you are too. I mean, the podcast, the the sort of quality of the sound, the sort of what you're producing is important, and. And that's helped me to sort of work with people to, uh, to understand that we together have to produce something that, that people will want. And, you know, and, that's, and that's difficult because you know, we talk about the commercial media and how it affects what you do, and it does. and you know, I have to change what I do. And you know, so I have to actually experience all of the problems and all of the conflicts and the ambivalences that I would otherwise have just theorised. You know, and I do it on a sort of weekly, you know, on a weekly basis. Uh, and then occasionally they drag me onto television and I have to confront all the things that speaking through that medium. I mean, I'm not very good at it. it. It's it's a very, I find that a difficult medium. But, you know, but it keeps returning me to this speaking outwardly thing. Um, and that's become sort of, I guess, a central motif for for me over the last sort of five you know, to 10 years, you know, and, and thinking about speaking outwardly. And, <clears throat> and which I, I guess I suppose i have to sort of say that means not to academics. When I say outwardly, it means, you know, <laughs> to people who aren't academics. Um, not to ever look I, I love the conversations in universities. It's, this is sort of difficult for me because, you know, i said, oh, so you don't really want to be in university? Well, yeah, I do. Because there are some people here who are still really interesting and have really good ideas. And they are not in a career so much, you know. And so, so I, you know, I love them. They're fantastic. I need them. So I need that connectedness too. So, so it's a funny little world that I live in, but that sort of, you know, there's some of its dimensions.
0: Could you give us an example just to finish up? In terms of Deleuze and Gattari, for example, for instance, and articulating their work to an issue that you address on the radio, I mean, it can be anyone you want. It might be international relations, it might be Western Australian regional politics, it could be economic development, it might be political parties. Where's an instance that you could give us where your familiarity and utilisation of their work has enabled you to speak to the public about a particular topic in a special way?
1: I think that um, probably the how it's helped me I mean, the, 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 I'm struggling against the most obvious stuff with them because their work was picked up by, you know, the Israeli army and actually used as part of the way they theorised the conduct of war. And they and they picked up work. Of, it was it was thousand plateaus, and they were able to sort of use that. I mean, that's the that's the easiest way because they already they've already done the work in in a sense for me um, versus. The what's important in the context of, of for me anyway in Deleuze and Guattari's work is the is the centrality of, of fluidity, and the ways in which the sorts of structures shape and you know deform and reshape and and, and, the, and the process of reconstituting is ongoing, and it's been interesting in talking about the reformation of the space through Syria, uh, Iraq, the IS. And and the fluidity of, of of identity, of movement, of the reconstitutive and the, what what Deleuze and Cotterie would call deterritorialization and re territorialisations oh, okay. that are that are at work in here. Now I obviously I'm not going to use that sort of language. But part because of Because it's
0: reach for your downtime, time if you do
1: Exactly. Exactly. You're not here on the podcast, Professor Cook. <laughs> no, I hope not anyway, otherwise, you know, I've just <laughs> lost your audience for you. <laughs> But, but trying to to see the the role of the political in terms of the emergence of identity, the reconstruction of identity, including of the young people in Australia, who who are fighting, who are doing, you know, who, some of them going over the fight, because those deterritorializations, those reconstructions mm-hmm. no. of identities, are also working throughout, you know, our countries, as we, you know, Canada, U.S., Australia, UK. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, and. Now that you know that actually also introduces the topological aspects of Deleuze and Guattari's works and the and the ideas of trying to see all these surfaces as somehow knotted and entwined, but but you know one of the ways i've been able to think about the commentary i do on on is and isis or isil or whatever we're calling it is is through those you know through that very different understanding of the political space mm-hmm. as a space of deterritorialization re territorialization deterritorialization reterritorialization and and i mean I, I think that's sort of i think that's helped me to, to make the situation in some ways less clear but more understandable, you know, because a lot of people are going to want to impose particular understandings of this is Sunni and Shia and they're constructing it this way and, and we've got right and wrong and, you know, versus actually, you know, the Shia are quite multiple and different and they're reconstructing their identities in the process against and through the Sunni and the Sunni are multiple and then you've got the... You know, so just... reminding people of the other sort of surfaces that are entwined in these sorts of processes without using that language.
0: So the value of complexity expressed in a clear way. Exactly. Well, Ian, thank you very much for giving up your time today and you've updated me, as I said, on my understanding of Australian politics, but I think you've given everybody an exemplary understanding of what being a public intellectual can be.
1: Thank you very much, Toby. Okay, so...